Hey everyone, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Today we're continuing our conversation with Mary Heinen McPherson. I'm Bhavna. And I'm Vendela. And this is Women's Health Incarcerated. So last week we talked with Mary, who was the main plaintiff for a class action lawsuit against the Detroit House of Corrections in 1977. This lawsuit opened the door for women to gain increased access to prison legal services and various educational and vocational programming. Although it worked towards mitigating some of the disparities that incarcerated women experience in terms of access to services and resources compared to incarcerated men, there are a vast number of disparities that continue to exist. Today, we're going to delve further into the unique impacts caused by the incarceration of women on families, communities, and society as a whole. Okay, so since 1980, the number of women who are incarcerated has increased by more than 750%. That's twice as much as men. And we mentioned this last week, but there are currently 231,000 women and girls who are incarcerated. But this number doesn't even showcase the whole picture because it doesn't include the women and girls who are under other forms of correctional control apart from incarceration. So Mary, do you feel like you have any idea of why this rate has been increasing so much? I think in part it's because everything is criminal now. I mean, even women trying to vote, they want to arrest. People of color, people who have limited resources, people who are really suffering are criminalized in almost everything that they do. So I think that the criminalization of everything has led to mass incarceration and to the serious situation with women because women primarily um, in the group groups that I have lived with and I have known are the caregivers and the providers and are the ones that keeps everybody together. If mama has a mental illness or an addiction or there's a a family situation of abuse. Um, It just makes everything 10 times worse. It will not be a short or easy struggle. No single weapon or strategy will suffice. But we shall not rest until that war is won. Lyndon B. Johnson first announced the War on Poverty in his State of the Union address in 1964 as a means to, quote, eliminate poverty from an entire continental nation, end quote. But Johnson's call for a war on poverty simultaneously led to a call for a war on crime, because at the same time as his efforts to reduce poverty levels in the U.S., LBJ also worked to increase federal government involvement in local law enforcement efforts by providing a lot of funding to local police officers. And this in turn essentially led to more intense crime watching, especially in poorer neighborhoods. While President Johnson introduced his war on poverty in 1964, it was in 1965 that he introduced the Law Enforcement Assistance Act to Congress, which was the first official piece of legislation that established federal involvement in local and state criminal justice operations. LBJ even stated that he hoped that 1965 would be the year, quote, when this country began a thorough, intelligent, and effective war against crime, end quote. 
So basically, the same public leader that dedicated his efforts to curb poverty pushed even more for policies that ultimately ended up raising levels of poverty. Because increasing the rate of mass incarceration has proven to be one of the key contributors to poverty in our country. In fact, according to the Center for Community Change, recent research suggests that if not for the rise in incarceration, the number of people in poverty would fall by as much as 20%. Okay, let's just dig into the statistic for a little bit. Well, incarceration contributes to poverty in a number of ways. To name one, incarceration imposes barriers to employment for many people who are re-entering society. Studies conducted by the Prison Policy Initiative indicate that the unemployment rate for people who were formerly incarcerated is over 27%, which is higher than any other historical unemployment period within the U.S., including during the Great Depression. That means that because people have a criminal record, it becomes much more difficult for them to find stable jobs and therefore a stable means of income which only increases their likelihood of becoming impoverished. Also in some cases, even the amount that a formerly incarcerated individual earns can be reduced or limited by their record, and if this person was the primary earner in a family, then that's just another way of pushing individuals and entire families into poverty. And to add to that, People with criminal records can be limited or even completely banned from receiving public benefit services like food stamps or cash assistance. Yeah, and what's unfortunate is that it's not just the fact that people who are re-entering society from being incarcerated are much more likely to be impoverished. The issue is actually much bigger. Incarceration doesn't just contribute to poverty, it targets it. Our criminal legal system essentially works to criminalize poverty. The most effective method our system uses to criminalize the poor is through the fines and fees associated with obscure laws. Why do they choose to fine people thousands of dollars when it's obvious that these people can't afford it? I mean, where is the logic? Well, turns out, because of some of the budget cuts for the courts, police departments, etc., one of the biggest ways that the criminal legal system funds itself is through these horrifying fines. Now, you may be wondering, how can someone get fined and what do these minor offenses and obscure laws look like? Well, depending on the state, you can get ticketed or fined for anything, ranging from giving food to people experiencing homelessness without a permit, to your dogs barking too loudly. According to the New York Times, there was a case in Atlanta where an individual, let's call her M.W., used her credit card to cover the cost of a rental car for her friend. The friend paid her back in cash, but ran off with the rental car. Although M.W. ended up recovering and returning the car, she was still charged with a felony theft. As a part of a program known as pretrial intervention, she was presented with the opportunity to take three months of classes and community service, and as a result, have her case be dismissed and record cleared. However, M.W. was a mother of five and was unable to pay the amount of money required to allow her to opt for this choice. And considering the arrest in the first place, she had already lost her job, further preventing her from being able to cover the costs that would keep her from being incarcerated, for a crime she never committed. These pretrial intervention or diversion programs are meant to provide a second chance for low-risk offenders. However, 
With the costs that come with it, it's evident that it's only providing a second chance to those who can afford it. In another case, an individual, let's call her VG, was ticketed for driving without a license, and in order to get a valid license, she had to pay off this ticket. However, VG's financial struggles prevented her from being able to pay off these tickets. She was working as a medical assistant, but was a mother of five and had to focus on providing her family with basic care, like a decent space to sleep and food to eat. She also could not afford other transportation services and therefore relied on driving to drop her children and her husband off at school and work. VG was essentially stuck in this loop. She kept asking for an extension, but then wasn't being given long enough extensions, and so her fines continued to build up, and these fines were what she was struggling to afford paying off in the first place. So, she was arrested. The court presented her with two options, either pay an additional fine of $1,000 or spend a month in jail. But let's just take a second to think about this for a moment. So VG was financially struggling, and... Also, keep in mind that there were more immediate costs to take into account than these driving tickets, like making sure that there was food on the table every night and that her family had proper health care. But knowing that the root issue of her arrest was due to an inability to pay off fines, the court decided to charge her with yet another fine as an alternative for going to jail. To make this situation even more frustrating and confusing than it already is, Almost like the cherry on top, there actually was a Supreme Court case, Bearden v. Georgia, in 1983, which ruled that, quote, people cannot be jailed or have probation revoked because of an inability to pay fines, end quote. I guess, kind of as a loophole, judges rarely check what individuals' incomes actually are, which was the case for VG because she even stated that the judge didn't ask her how many dependents there were or what her income was. The way the system is set up is clearly punishing those who are already at a disadvantage because if someone has the means to pay these fines or to cover the costs of a pretrial intervention program, then they have the means to literally escape incarceration and the various collateral consequences. So... What is this system trying to say about your value as a human if you do not have the means to pay your fines? There is so much more to be said about the criminalization of poverty, and this is a conversation that we're going to keep having with each other and with you all. If you want to learn more about this topic, one resource that we both found helpful was the podcast episode called Criminalization of Poverty by Justice in America, so definitely be sure to check them out. So when we talked to Mary, we learned that for women especially, this criminalization of the poor exacerbates the cycle of violence, poverty, and ultimately mass incarceration. According to 2019 Prison Policy Initiative research, 80% of women who are incarcerated in jails are mothers, most of whom are the primary caretakers of their children. A recent study on the impacts of maternal incarceration on children notes that the population of children whose mothers are incarcerated is one of the most vulnerable and at-risk populations in the United States. This is due to the fact that mothers are more likely to be the primary parent in a household and are usually at a greater economic disadvantage before, during, and after incarceration. Such findings suggest that when mothers become incarcerated, the impact on their children and on their family 
is much greater and more harmful than when fathers are incarcerated. Most women had custody of their children. So when they were arrested, uh, it was an immediate crisis in a serious situation. Who's going to take care of the babies? Who's going to take care of these kids? So in the neighborhoods I came from, it was grandma. Grandma took the babies. Grandma took care of everybody. In my work as a social worker, I've known two or three generations of people living in grandma's house because all the social services and uh, housing had been cut so dramatically that that was the only place for them to go. And so with men, when men get arrested, mama and grandma, you know, somebody's going to take care of those babies and those kids, but it's a horrible problem for the babies all the way around, whether it's mom or dad, but when it's mom, the results of that, of what mom's arrest and the results of what's happening with her can literally affect generations. So essentially, the ways in which the incarceration system is impacting women is also very much impacting the ways that their children are being raised. There's a higher chance that children either end up with very poor living situations or in the foster care system, and I feel like that goes to show even more how violence is just so cyclical. When I first started working at PCAP, I hired in in 2006. And about 2007, like immediately, I started going with Buzz to youth facilities to do portfolio. We helped the youth in workshops to prepare these beautiful portfolios that they could take to a judge or an employer or, you know, eventually school outside. But I found out in places like Boysville in Clinton Township, this is before Spectrum came in and took it over, 50% or more of those boys could not read. And unbelievable numbers of those kids had a parent or an immediate family member in prison. So these end up being, they're the throwaway kids, they're the kids that get tossed to the side when mama goes to jail or, you know, our dad or uncle or grandpa or grandma. And so what happens with those children is directly tied into what happens with the mom and with the parents and with the family unit. Mary, while we have you, can you talk a little bit about whether you feel like there's been any kind of progress in today's state? There's so much conversation about equality for gender and the feminist movement, and people are thinking that we've become a lot more progressive, but within the ways that the incarceration system works, do you feel like there's progress? I was someone that came up in the age of the bra burners and the rise of feminism and the rise of women's liberation movements and civil rights and voting rights movements. And the idea of civil liberties, I hold dear to my heart. And to me, it's night and day between the way it was when I was a little kid and the way that it is now because women are going to school, women are becoming educated, women are leaders in, in the law, in, you know, in the social sciences. And I just saw two women this morning on the tube planning to go to the moon. I mean, we, we have been liberated from the chains that bound us in many respects, but in others, because of mass incarceration, you know, they're rounding up and hauling away the poorest of the poor and the people with the fewest resources. So you don't see women in prison with money. You don't see women in prison that have five defense attorneys and and an investigative team. And, you know, it's 
rich folks. It's folks that have money and influence and bucks and can, you know, get help for themselves. You don't see. I, I, I was floored when Felicity Huffman got two weeks in prison and the next day they were saying, oh, she only has 13 days to go. Uh, you know, come on, people. You've got women that have been in the penitentiary for 40 years for crimes they never committed. And, you know, and you're publicizing this poor woman who's really going to suffer because she has to go take a nap. It's disturbing how, how skewed we are about time and about the meaning of time and torture in prison and what it really means to do time. Prison is torture. Prison is exile. Prison kills you. Prison is a terrible, terrible thing. And the idea that we use that against people that are mentally ill, and we use that against women who are trying to keep their families together and trying to get home to their family and trying to stay out there with their family. You know, when they get home, they can't find a job. They can't, maybe can't find a place to live. The, the consequences of having felonies and having a record are just devastating. They want to treat you like you're a pariah, which is crazy because, you know, over a third of the entire U.S. population now has an uh, arrest record. So I'm not just a book, I'm not a statistic, I'm not a felon, I'm not, you know, somebody that's the scum of the earth. I'm someone that made terrible mistakes when I was young. I caused suffering and saw the air of my ways and straightened up and, as my dad said, I straightened up and flew right. So I've watched the women's liberation movement grow. And so I'm seeing beautiful, lovely students now that I work with that were the children of folks that were raised during that era. And I see, I mean, it just totally turns me on when I see women that want to go to law school, want to go to medical school, want to, you know, really pursue education. But I'm also excited for the ones that want to be plumbers and carpenters and electricians or just want to be a mama like Leslie and go home and take care of the grandbabies. The choices that women have now are much more broad and rich and full than they were when I was a kid. And I think it's important to have conversations like these where you can share information from directly affected people. So I think giving those opportunities and those chances to folks that are locked up now is really important. And I think the some of the progressive movements on alternatives to sentence and in, in improving indigent defense is really important. That whole racket is a mess. And I think that for women to help women, like we are right now, women talking to women. Nothing could be more important to me than women talking to women. Because, like my dear says, women will save us. And I, you know, I believe that. Women will save us because we see what's happening now. We're going to hell in a handbasket. I know we've read and researched enough about our incarceration system to realize that it's harmful and ineffective. But... Hearing Mary speak about this concept of time and how easy it is for us to place people behind bars for years and years, removing them from the rest of society, from their family and friends, without really considering what that could do to a person, that's disturbing to process. Even when you consider conditions of confinement, why is it that we as a society are so comfortable to send people away to places that we aren't even sure about in terms of how they look or feel like? And what are we hoping to accomplish by doing this? We can't claim rehabilitation because rehabilitation would mean proper access to healthcare and proper access to educational programming and resources to help an individual and their family to stand on their own two feet once they're out. But this isn't the reality, so what are we doing? 
So for our last question today, we were wondering what you feel are some key takeaways for people who don't have as much knowledge on the incarceration system and are still interested in learning more. I think that giving people the opportunity that have been incarcerated or injustice involved, as they say now, is critical because then you start to hear the voices of people that have been silenced. And they have a voice, but they've been silenced and they haven't had the opportunity to tell you what they really think. And I think being able to share information and stories from directly affected people is absolutely critical to prison reform. Not about us without us. So having a relationship with prisoners, having a relationship with formerly incarcerated people is extremely critical to understand what's happening. And it's generating prison reform because as these stories come out, and folks like John Legend and Van Jones and Kim Kardashian are in the news day after day after day saying, look at this case, look at this, see, hear this story. Uh, or Sister Helen preaching, you know, th this person should not be executed. They didn't do it. Here's the evidence. I think nothing could be more uh, timely and important than hearing us and advocating for us and assisting us because at the rate of mass incarceration now and with the way immigration is being addressed and treated. It, they're just scandalous human rights violations day after day after day after day that um, need to be addressed and need to be addressed by people that know what's going on. Yeah, that's a really powerful point. And we're very thankful for you to sit down with us and share your experiences. Also, I know you're from Michigan, so I was wondering if you had any suggestions for people who want to get more involved in this work more locally. I would advise that you take a look at PCAP, P-C-A-P, at UMICH, and look at our website and uh, listen to the reentry podcast. We've, we've done our own podcast for the last couple of seasons where we have shared information for people coming home and for, for each other, for us, resources and information, and the stories are fascinating. The stories that are coming out of people that are returning are uh, brilliant and timely and wise and um, it, it's just totally fascinating to listen to what everybody has to say and very interesting personally for me to be able to show and tell what it's, life is like on the other side because you have no idea of what it's like when you're fighting every day for your life and you're barely hanging on you, you're not thinking about what am I going to do if I get out of here you know a few do, a few have dates coming up and they have to think about it, they have to plan or whatever. But um, survival is, is really tricky. And, and it takes a lot to, just to come home and be able to figure out, all right, now what I do. I think that it's important also to look at local organizations like American Friends Service Committee, the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency, Safe and Just Michigan, the ACLU, SATO, uh, State Appellate Defender's Office in Detroit, they have a remarkable, a, a fantastic um, reentry program happening for returning juvenile lifers that really need help. I mean, these are folks that went in when they were 15 and 16 and, you know, teenagers, and now they're coming out 40 years later, 45 years later, 35 years later, um, you know, trying to figure out what the hell do I do now? So, you know, take a look at groups that that you might be interested in working with or volunteering with. And if you, um, you know, are in a community like a church or a social service community or your work in the election or, you know, in the, in the communities in which you live and move and have your being, just pay attention. And, it, and I would say to you, 
it might not affect you right now, but it could be your grandchildren, it could be their children. I mean, at the rate that we're going, it could be everybody. So it, it pays to be aware. And there's, I've met so many beautiful people in this community that really have a heart for prisoners and for former prisoners and understand what's happening. And I thank you and I honor you and I tip my hat to you. Mary, thank you so much for being here with us today. We hope you found this episode to be insightful and have gained a bit more of an understanding of the inner workings of our country's incarceration system, the way that it works against the poor and against women, and the way that it impacts families and communities as a whole. Join us next week as we discuss how incarcerated individuals experience periods in prison. Until next time. Women's Health Incarcerated works to raise awareness about the experiences of women within our current incarceration system, with a primary focus on health-related issues. The podcast can be found on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you want to learn more about our episodes, view the transcripts to see where we get our information, or find different ways that you could get involved, please visit www.winkthemovement.org. That's www.whincthemovement.org. Thank you.